One way to make more money with your store is to increase your average order value. The sales motivator from Bold might just be the one app that every store should have to increase AOV. The only requirement is that you have special offers. I'm sure you do, but are you doing a good job of motivating your customers to use those special offers? So let's say you offer free shipping at 50 bucks, or you're fancy and offer a free gift at $100. The sales motivator is the one app that tells your customers exactly how much more they need to spend to get to that offer. And it does it every time they add something to their cart. So imagine this, customer adds something to their cart and a message appears saying, you're only $19 away from free shipping. Then they add something else and it says, you're only four bucks away from free shipping. So we tried it, it works. We saw a 30% increase in average order size just from this app. And it gets better. Bold Sales Motivator automatically adds those free gifts to the cart when they hit the goal. And it lets you schedule messages to start and stop for your holiday promotions. And the most important one of all, it adds geolocation. So it'll only show certain messages to specific countries. So let's say you only offer free shipping in the United States, right? You wouldn't want that free shipping message to show in countries where you don't offer it. Bold Sales Motivator lets you do that. The folks at Bold are smart cookies, and they have thought of everything. So try it free for 60 days by signing up at ethercycle.com bold. That's ethercycle.com bold. Additional support for the unofficial Shopify podcast comes from SEO Manager. You know the benefit of SEO. The higher you rank in search engines, the more visitors your store will have. And more visitors means more sales, which means more money in your pocket. But how do you do that? That's where SEO Manager comes in. It helps Shopify store owners get found in search engines, and it's trusted by thousands of Shopify stores. It leads the market in both innovation and usability, and it's no wonder. SEO Manager adds an entire suite of tools to help attract new customers by fully optimizing your store. So here's a few of my favorites. It scans your site for SEO issues, offers keyword suggestions, adds structured data support, analyzes missing pages and redirects, and it even integrates with Kit, Shopify's personal marketing assistant. And that's not all. It does a whole bunch of more stuff. All of these things will help you to be easily found in Google and other search engines. And best of all, it's easy to get started. You can launch SEO Manager on your store in minutes, and their friendly support team is always on standby if you need help. Plus, as a special offer to our listeners, you can get SEO Manager right now for 10% off forever. Sign up at seomanager.com unofficial. That's seomanager.com unofficial. Hello and welcome to the unofficial Shopify podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Elstner, recording from EtherCycle headquarters high above Old Orchard Mall in Skokie, Illinois. And there is a typical theme we've seen in the show when speaking to entrepreneurs is they have a pain or problem in their life and it's not, there's no satisfactory solution on the market. And they have an idea, they go, well, you know, I could solve it, why shouldn't I? And they come up with an idea and then are able to, to bring it to market. And then from there, it's all, you know, riches and glory, right? But the part, I think all of us have had a point in our life where we have an idea for a product. You know, maybe it's that, that pain or problem situation, or just it occurs to you like, hey, here's a better way to do this. I've got this product I want to make. But then what, right? Like, where do you go from there? And even if you can get a prototype made, well, it doesn't help you at scale. So you, ultimately, it's, you got to find a factory. You need someone, whatever your thing is, even if it's a private label product that already exists, you still got to find a factory who could do it, who can build it for you, 
right? And that's where the nightmare starts for many entrepreneurs. That's when you discover that for most people, it turns into a web of miscommunication, middlemen, and missed deadlines. Like I, in the history of the universe, I don't think a, a factory has ever delivered on time. That's how it feels from talking to, to my, my Shopify store owner clients. So how do you do it right? How do you avoid those pitfalls that have befallen so many crowdfunded projects, right? Like go through updates on Kickstarter and like everyone is going to have stories about how the, the factory missed their deadline. That's how it feels anyway. But fortunately, we have someone who has both brought dozens of products to market, run three e-commerce companies, sold one, and been a part of, of projects on Kickstarter, raising over seven figures. Nathan Resnick is our guest today. He joins us from his new company, Sourceify which is a platform that makes manufacturing easy. Oh my gosh, that's perfect. So this gentleman, having helped hundreds of companies manufacture products around the world, is going to tell us how to find, vet, and build a relationship with a factory so that you too could turn your idea into a real product. Nathan, thank you for joining my us. My pleasure. What's going on? How are you? <laughs> uh, well, I'm recording a podcast with this guy right now. <laughs> What's up with you? You know, just uh, ready to dive into some information and teach people how to manufacture products around the world. Sure, I, and I would love to hear it. But first, I want to hear your story. How did you get it? How do you, it's, it's like a weird niche thing to be in. Yeah. How'd you find yourself yeah, here? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, people always wonder, you know, how this white guy start manufacturing products around the world and, and get to where I'm at. Today. Yeah, Whitey, what's going on? And, and so really, you know, I started in, in high school, like my interest in global business and just the international economy really stemmed from the rise of, of the Chinese economy. And so in high school, I was a foreign exchange student living with a host family that didn't speak English uh, about an hour outside of Beijing and just got so fascinated by the power of these factories to produce all sorts of products. And, you know, to be honest, like my first experience selling products online was through eBay. And we were like flipping knockoff Beats headphones that we got from factories that were overproducing because, you know, if you're a factory and trying to produce 100,000 units, you can't produce just 100,000 units. There's always going to be some runoff. So we would be able to buy those, those runoff products on black markets and flip them on different, uh, you know, e-commerce marketplaces. But, you know, really being in China and being fully immersed there starting at the age of 16, it just gave me such a cool understanding and insight into the way that the culture works over there. And it's so relationship fueled where, you know, as the, that, you know, e-commerce dynamic grew, I realized that I wanted to start my own e-commerce company. And so uh, after I got back from China, you know, I moved out to San Diego, California for college. Um, I'm originally from Maryland, though. So going from, you know, east to west was a, definitely a different dynamic and a bit of a change up. And I, I mean, I love the West Coast right now, but uh, re regardless, you know, my first e-commerce company that really grew was a Shopify store called Yes Man. And we invented the first leather watch strap without holes. It worked like a zip tie, like those belt buckles. Um, and, you know, the watch strap just slid through the buckle and it caught on notches in the strap. And that grew to a six figure Shopify store. And, you know, I was just blown away. Like, you know, our gross margins were, I think, on the watches, like 83 percent. We started selling uh, sunglasses that were 94% gross margin. And people were always asking me, you know, Nathan, how do you manufacture products so fast and effectively? You know, you know you've created your own custom products. And um, I think everyone in the industry knows the, the differences between like drop shipping and private labeling and creating your own custom products. And so, you know, for me, I'd always been that, you know, private label or custom product guy. And so I started helping companies like Original Grain or Loom Cube or uh, Vincero start manufacturing different products. 
and, you know, realized how big a problem it was out there for someone to connect with the right factory. Um, and so as that e-commerce company grew, I started doing like a lot more consulting with, uh, you know, helping these companies manufacture products and just realized that I could create a software solution to automate that process. Because you look at the experience that's out there right now, you know, no one likes going on Alibaba or Global Sources or whatever it may be. I mean, you just don't know if those companies are real or not. And about 70% of those companies listed on there are trading companies or agents or wholesalers. So it's, you know, you can't manufacture effectively. And so I decided to create a platform to, to you know, make it a lot easier and reliable to bring a product to life. Okay. So <laughs> a, lot, a lot there to unpack. Um, you've got, so number one, like this is, you started at 16. So you've got a, a ton of experience with this and it was with total aversion. So I mean, you're, one of your your clear unfair advantages here is you speak Mandarin, yeah. right? So you've got a, and you live there. So you have a much better understanding of the cultural. And certainly- Yeah, I mean, not only did I just live there, I mean, I was one of 48 uh, international high school students to be fully immersed in China. I used to have to wear Shaofu, which is like the Chinese school uniform, and ride my bike to school for 15 minutes every day while people would be like, la wai, la wai. It's like a foreign, I mean, it's foreigner. It's like a welcoming remark in China for the most part, but- I mean, people would do double takes being like, what is this white dude doing wearing this Chinese school uniform? It was crazy. <laughs> so what, um, okay. What do you think are some of the business wise, what are some of the, the cultural differences that occur between like do it, dealing with a factory in the US or dealing with a factory in mainland China? Totally. I mean, I would say in China and Asia, Asia in general, it's, it's so relationship driven, you know, in America, your contracts can hold up to some extent, but at the end of the day, you know, in China, it's all relationship based. And for you as a foreign company, especially if you're going to go and try and fight like a legal battle in Asia or China, you know, good luck. Like I would bet against you just because the legal system doesn't work like that. And so, you know, you can sign contracts and NDAs and all of that all day long, but at the end of the day, you know, really it's about the relationship you build with your factory. And a lot of times, for example, if you're a smaller e-commerce store only producing a few hundred or a few thousand units and a bigger buyer comes in and says, hey, you know, we want to do a hundred thousand unit production run through this factory. It's going to be very hard for that factory to, you know, continue to focus on your production run while trying to, ha- while, while trying to handle this bigger uh, buyer. And so I think the dynamic there stems from the relationship that you build. Um, and that's really, you know, our bread and butter at Sourceify. We go on the ground floor to hundreds of different factories around Asia and around the world in Mexico as well and build those relationships and ensure that you know, the leads and, and, and businesses that we're connecting to these factories are able to grow through our relationship. And so, um, you know, I guess one story I could tell right off the bat is if you ever go to China, you know, you'll see that the culture connotations are so strong where a lot of times business is done over lunch or dinners where you're drinking or smoking and um, on one specific occasion, I remember I was with like a, a friend slash, you know, user of Sourceify that hadn't, you know, spent much time in China. And so this guy had never smoked like a cigarette in his life. And I, I don't smoke, but, you know, he thought he'd be polite by accepting this cigarette from the factory boss over lunch. Be like, oh, yeah, like, this is great. Like, this guy smokes, I'll smoke too. And I'm like giving him this look like, dude, what are you doing? You know, you don't, you don't smoke. <laughs> and so he's like starting to try to smoke this cigarette and starts coughing so much. And like he thought, you know, after him, I, I like asked, like, you know, what are you doing? Like, why'd you just uh, accept that cigarette? He's like, oh, I'm trying to build the relationship with the factory boss. And I'm like, look, like what you didn't just realize was that if the factory could get a non-smoker to pick up a nasty habit, like, you know, smoking so easily, 
like imagine the terms that he could potentially get you to accept, uh, you know, just through a production run. And so I think a lot of times people don't really understand certain culture connotations that Asia has. And, you know, I'm not saying that accepting a cigarette or a drink is a bad thing. And there, there are certain times that you should definitely, you know, go out drinking or to KTVs, which is like a karaoke bars in China that build relationships. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not like you should go over there and pick up completely new habits. And it's not like you should really, uh, you know, do something completely new just to build a relationship over there. So you've got to be level-headed uh, when you go into this dynamic. And I think a lot of people kind of miss see the route to that. What are some of the, I like the, the first example is really good. Are there any other obvious examples, mistakes that you've seen people made? And if I, you know, if I were to go to China right now, how would you help me avoid embarrassing myself? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I mean, I would say, you know, right off the bat, you, you see so many factories get fed up because from the factory side of the table, you know, ask yourself how do factories get leads right now? You know, they either get leads through open marketplaces like Alibaba and Global Sources or through trade shows. And both ways, they're not only spending tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on to get those leads, but they're also having to spend thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on sales reps. You know, you go into a, a big factory uh, location and they have not only their factory floor, but they have this team of sales reps that are 10, 20, 30 plus people, depending on the size of the factory. And so, you know, you see some buyers go in there and they're faced with so many options. Like when you go to produce a product, a lot of people don't realize just the number of specifications that you need to sort out. And whether it just be like a jacket, you know, the sizing of the hole on your shoulder for the sleeve is going to be uh, different than the sizing of the hole when your, your hand comes out of the jacket. And so even those little specifications that are sorted through a tech pack are important and make a factory's life so much easier if you know that beforehand. And those are some specifications that you can sort out between a factory. But, you know, you see some some people that are going and trying to go into a production run and they don't even know what they want. And so they're presented with all these options and they're just they're, they're lost and it annoys the factory and makes the factory fed up to the point that, you know, sometimes the factory for them, it doesn't make sense to spend you know two months or a month going back and forth and trying to sort specifications with a client that's only going to produce a few thousand units. You know, if you don't have your your spec set and if you don't know what you want to produce then it's very hard for them to help you. And it just kind of annoys that process because it drags it on and on and on. And so I would say from an e-commerce uh, entrepreneur's perspective, if you're bringing a new product to life, you know, either have something similar, very similar to what you want to produce lined up, whether it be like a photo or a, a sample even and send that sample over to the factory or, you know, have your tech pack or CAD set up. So you're ready to go into production because, you know, we've had users go through Sourceify where people place orders on samples within a few hours of them being connected to the right factories, which is incredible. I mean, like, you know, being able to buy a product in a few hours and start a manufacturing run is in a few hours is has never been done before outside of Sourceify. And so, you know, that's the dynamic that we add to the table. But then you have some users that, you know, they start with one product idea and they're like, I think I want it like this. And then they go back and forth and they don't actually make samples for, you know, two or three months just because they don't know what they actually want. And so I would say right off the bat, almost before you go out to find a factory or while you're going to search for that factory partner, make sure you have your specifications right. And, you know, you can always adjust samples. You know, your first sample doesn't have to be your final, 
But at the end of the day, you know, if you're producing a few hundred units and don't even know what you want, like the factory's not going to be very motivated to work with you. Right. So, well, it sounds like one of the best things you could do to entice the factory to be be fantastic for you, to be a great vendor, is you have to be you have to work to be their favorite client. And the the trick there is, you know, treat them as people, mm-hmm. be be a human, you know, build that right. relationship. Number one, um, and number two, be prepared. Right. Do your homework. Exactly. And the the same is true, um, you know, in, in our own business. Like I I will absolutely favor the people who appear to be you know, warm, friendly professionals who have, you know, have done, done their due diligence like that absolutely makes sense. But of course, you know, it's not obvious until you've experienced it. So it has to right. be said. And you look at, you uh, look at the factory side of the table too. You know, I've had people ask me like, oh, you know, this factory rep hit me up on every social media platform and email and all of this. And I'm like, yeah, like they're trying to do their due diligence on you as well to see if your company is actually big or not. Because if you're a big company and you're a buyer from a you know, large retailer, you're going to try to close that deal a lot harder than if you're, you know, some guy that's just starting out. And so it goes on both sides of the table, I'd say. So it's, that means um, things are definitely going to be biased against the people who just show up and are like, I've got this idea, go. Right. I mean, you know, it's unless a factory is like really itching for business, um, which there are some factories out there that, you know, are really looking for new business. I would say most of the time, you know, make help help them make your life you'd be the least desirable right, one exactly okay so you have to work then you have you have to work to convince them and i think so the two ways then are um you know have great have great industrial design you could share right. with them like a, a napkin right. sketch is not going to do it but having hired and we've talked to people on the show um i think a, a couple times who do industrial mm-hmm. design where it really is not terribly expensive you know, to have someone have an industrial designer put together, um, uh, what do you call them? Um, like a, a design in right. SolidWorks that you could then share. That really, it's like this is the thing we need to exactly. get built. Um, like, I can be, yeah. That like, would, for example, you know, just yesterday I had, you know, we, we get like a ton of people that reach out every single day. But the whole dynamic, like yesterday, I had a friend introduce me to another guy who like wants to start this male like cos like it's like a male hair products line, and he wants to do the co- the packaging of it. And I'm like, great. Like, what packaging do you want? You know, and he's like, oh, well, here's our logo. I'm like, yeah, but what packaging do you want? You know, like, what's your actual yeah. like brand identity? You know, do you have your color palettes down? Like, do you actually have the designs of that packaging down? Or can you send us something similar to what you like? And he's like, here's our logo. I'm like, great. Well, what do you want me to do with your logo? You know? Yeah. I mean, there's so much more than that. But part of and the issue is like starting out when you've never done it before, you don't know what right. you don't know. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of what we're we're unpacking here a bit so that people don't make those, commit those faux exactly. pas, really. I, I um, think we should also talk about, you know, if you want to dive into like how to choose a product. I mean, I think some people kind of question that in terms of what goes into actually making that decision in terms of is this, does this product make sense to actually sell through an e-commerce site or does it make sense for my store to extend into this product line? Oh, yeah. If you have experience there. Um, well, actually, yeah, let's jump into that now. How... So you, one of your, your early successes was this, you had a Kickstarter project called Yes Man Watches, and you can still see the Kickstarter page up is archived, raised $33,000, so totally validated right. the idea. And it looks very cool. It's a watch strap. Um, I like it. And 
so that was, you know, you had that idea. What did you do to validate it? Yeah. Um, so, you know, people always ask me about that company. And this was like, you know, I had done products before that I hadn't, you know, made myself or, you know, that I hadn't private labeled. So this was like my first custom product. This was in uh, it was like 2013 or 14. And basically the whole dynamic there was people always ask me like, Nathan, are you like a watch guy? Are you into watches? And like, I wasn't even into watches at all. You know, I, had, I knew nothing about watches. I didn't know the difference between the, uh, automatic uh, movement and a manual movement. Like I had no clue. And for me, it was just that idea like, oh, wow, like I see this belt buckle that works like a zip tie. Why don't I see if I can do that on a watch strap? No one else was doing it. And I was like, damn, like I think this is a pretty good idea. I started asking friends about it, talking about it. And I think that's like another misstep where, you know, for every brand, regardless of your size, like before you launch a product, you at least judge the interest from your users. I mean, the best way to do that would be either to create a rendering of that product to see what people think and get some feedback, um, whether it be through your you know, best customers or just ask people about it. You have a lot of people that are kind of scared to share their ideas. And it's like, why? You know, like yeah. if you're the yeah. one that oh, yeah, owns yeah. the brand and, and, you know, really has the vision for it, like no one's going to go knock it off. Like, I mean, my client. Yeah, it's hard enough for you to man you. It's hard enough for you know, as you learn when you're trying to get a thing made, right. it, it's very difficult to do. Right. So you really shouldn't be afraid of other people right. knocking off exactly. that idea. Um, and you definitely don't want to invest, you know, the, the time and money and, re- and emotion into getting that product initially made if you haven't validated it. And that's, there's, uh, you know, talking about being, you know, making yourself the best client. Exactly. You want to be everybody's favorite client. Right? Exactly. And two so- of the things and so like well, for me, yeah, that's how you're right. yeah. so for me the interest like you know it wasn't necessarily there in watches but it was the brand like i had a group of buddies in college would be like cliff jumping before between classes like surfing just like really realizing everything started with yes and i was like man this, this is like a cool brand that i want to start that was my interest and i see like some entrepreneurs they're like trying to create products they wouldn't even use themselves and i'm like what the heck you know like where does that stem from i think when, first you got to ask yourself Am I actually interested or do I think my customer base, if I already have an existing you know, company, is interested in the product we're launching? Number two, look at the margin. You know, you can you can you know get a pretty strong estimate of how much a product's gonna cost just doing like an online search through certain marketplaces. Um, you know, we usually sell like send, save about 10 to 30 percent of that kind of cost you see online of these marketplaces through Sourceify. But your margin, like I would say most e-commerce entrepreneurs doing through Shopify their gross margin should be like 70, 75% at least um, for like big watch companies, like movement watches, like their gross margins average about 85, 90%. I mean, they're producing their watches for like $10, 70 cents around 11 bucks and selling them for about a hundred dollars. So right off the bat, you know, you know, you got to analyze your, your cost per acquisition, you know, costs and really kind of understand that marketing dynamic plus your operation costs. You know, if you can't have your product, have a, if your product doesn't have a high margin, then it's not going to be a scalable e-commerce product. Um, and last but not least, what I would touch on when choosing a product is the complexity. You know, the easiest thing to do, which is a great way to start, honestly, is just private label a product. Like create a dope brand and invest in the marketing and build that brand and create a product that isn't too complex to start out with. And as you grow and as you validate that brand, then you can create more complex products, create your own CADs, you know, create your own molds and go through that whole dynamic. Um, and I think that's really kind of the best step into creating a, a private label brand or, or a custom product is just trying to focus on something that's not too complex right off the bat. Because if you have to go invest in a new mold, that's going to cost you, you know, 10, 20, $30,000. It's a big upfront investment for someone that 
you know, regardless of if they're in business or not, like that's still a big investment for you to just start out and get your first question undone with, you know? And it, is, it sounds like um, I like this idea of start with private label so that you could you could build the brand, validate the idea, and and get your feet wet without diving full in. Um, and oftentimes, a great way to then validate once you have the private label thing to validate it um, is just to to sell it on a marketplace like Amazon. We have seen I've got you know a dozen clients who have done that successfully, and then. As you suggested, all right, now start building custom products. And by then, you have the relationship right. with the factory. And then, all right, now let's expand that brand onto uh, other channels like uh, Shopify. Um, okay, so recapping, like, uh, start with the private label idea uh, to, to get your feet wet. Validate it. Make sure it's something that, you know, you... Uh, you like that you you feel you know you could get behind that you would use even if not necessarily like you don't necessarily have to be absolutely into it you know like you weren't totally into watches but it was like kind of a lifestyle and in the Sam Walton way you said well I saw this cool idea and thought huh I could take that cool idea and apply it to something else and that's often all Sam Walton did um, and then uh, from there scale so you've got you said you got to get the you know, if you're starting with manufacturing, you know, you want the you want um, the factory to take you seriously as a mm-hmm. as a client, as a customer. You started with Kickstarter, and you said, you know, these factories will be like hitting you up on social media. They're trying to vet you. They're trying to figure out if you are big enough to be right. worth the hassle. Is a Kickstarter, if you're just starting out, is a successful Kickstarter enough to get their attention? And I mean, Kickstarters are, are a bit tricky in some sense because you don't know what your final production run is going to be in terms of the size of the order. So uh, Kickstarter, you know, number one, when you're going to a crowdfunding campaign, have your production run, like your, your at least understand your, your minimum unit cost in terms of like your MOQ order size. And so get that down so you at least know your cost of products at your minimum so you know what you have to raise. And like, for us and for all the Kickstarter crowdfunding campaigns that I've done, like most of that money, a lot of that money goes into inventory. And without that money, you know, these companies can't launch and grow because they wouldn't have the investment to put into inventory. And so that's kind of that whole dynamic behind a crowdfunding campaign. But I would say right off the bat, you know, know how you're going to produce your products. You see so many crowdfunding campaigns that take, you know, a year or two years to fulfill their products because they don't have their supply chain set up and they don't understand their costs. I mean, like, the coolest cooler, they did like, what, like $10 million or something on Kickstarter. And some of those coolers haven't even been fulfilled yet because they, number one, you know, didn't realize what it would be to ramp up their production like that. Number two, didn't understand their unit costs at that scale. Just didn't have that uh, scalability behind their manufacturing. So I just checked that they raised $13.2 million And there's some, you know, there's over 20,000 comments on their Kickstarter camp- campaign page. And some people haven't even gotten their products yet and it's been like like what two three years like this guy's literally commenting like seriously i've been patient literally for years i can only imagine the difficulties in scale like it's crazy to think that, oh yeah you, know, you crush a campaign and you can't fulfill in your products so right off the bat going into a crowdfunding campaign like please please at least understand your, your moq unit cost and understand how you're going to ramp up production because if you're really trying to hit that home run on a Kickstarter Indiegogo campaign, like understand how you're going to scale up because a factory that can produce, you know, 10, 30,000 units a month isn't the same one that can produce hundreds of thousands of units a month. So have some options and visibility in terms of, you know, where you think you can take your crowdfunding campaign. Okay. So, all right, unpacking a little bit, 
Number one, the current, I got to find a factory. And the current system is go to a trade show, meet some people, come up with a short list, go try it, cruise Alibaba, which is its own ordeal. Um, but that's what a lot of people, um, entrepreneurs on the show have, have done. They've used Alibaba. And, or, you know, we can use um, a middleman or your service, this platform, uh, mm-hmm. Sourceify. So once I, let's say we've, I've found a factory through one of these sources. How do I vet them? How do I know totally. they're the real deal? I would say the right, right off the bat, you know, the two other sources, marketplaces like Alibaba and, and uh, trade shows like Canton Fair or ASD Sourcing or Magic Sourcing, you know, those trade shows in Vegas. Um, I'll actually be speaking at ASD Sourcing if you guys are there in March. It'd be pretty cool to see you. But regardless, um, they're going to be separated into three categories. Number one are trading companies. Number two are wholesalers. And number three is what you're really going to be looking for, and that's the factories. So trading companies... You know, the main reasons why you don't want to work with a trading company, and for those of you that don't know what a trading company is, a lot of them basically claim to be factories, claim to have their own facilities, but actually work with, you know, what we call feeder factories in the industry, where they're taking a bunch of clients in and just trying to place production runs and taking a margin on those production runs. So you aren't going to get the actual factory cost. I'd say most trading companies take an average of a 30% margin or so. Um, You're going through a middleman. So the problem with that is, you know, you're relaying your specs through another person. And if they aren't relaying your specs in a, in a you know, smooth way to the factory, there could be some mix-ups in your product. And what's really scary about that is it's pretty easy for trading companies to disappear. And at the end of the day, if you don't know where your products are actually being produced, how can you scale up production? You know, if that trading company disappears or if something goes wrong with your products, you don't even know the location of where, of where your factory is at. And so I would say, you know, number one, it's going to be, harder to assess the factory that's actually producing your product when you're working with a trading company. Number two, it's going to be difficult to hold a trading company liable in case of defective products. Like let's say a trading company ships, you know, a thousand units of, of uh, defective watches. You know, what are you going to do? The trading company can say, oh, you know, it was the factory. And you're like, well, who's the factory? And chances are they aren't even going to tell you who the factory is. Um, and, you know, number three, the scariest part is they can disappear pretty easily. And especially like, you know, people say like, oh, you know, they're gold supplier on Alibaba. Alibaba is pay to play. You know, I can literally set up a gold supplier Alibaba account in like a week or so and get up there and get online. But I think that whole dynamic is that when you have a pay to play marketplace like Alibaba or Global Sources, you know, it, it's a bit scary. And there's there's some you know, you know, really dynamics that you have to look to, look into in terms of who you're actually dealing with. And so, um, you know, right off the bat, some of these uh, factories or some of these companies listed on Alibaba will have the name trading company in them. And you've got to do, do due diligence on those. But that's usually a red flag right off the bat. Um, walking into wholesalers, you know, the neat thing about wholesalers is a lot of times they have some foreign representatives in terms of them having an office in America or, or some setup in America or partners in America. And a lot of times that can be nice, but these wholesalers make even a bigger margin than trading companies a lot of times. So like, for example, we had, uh, I'll just give an example right off the bat. We had a company, JJ George, who was producing premium grills and like grilling equipment through Sourceify. And he was buying a few key components through wholesalers here in America. And he was like, man, like I know these wholesalers are going through factories. Like, why don't I try to go directly to factories as well? So we literally like for pastors and a few different grilling, grilling equipment. Um, we literally saved him 65% of what this wholesaler was charging him here in America. So like, if, imagine just, you know, that's one example. 
But being able to go directly to a factory and cut out that wholesaler and save 65% of your unit cost is crazy. And so that's that kind of whole dynamic behind going through a wholesaler where, you know, a lot of times if the wholesaler has, uh, you know, a presence here in America or wherever, it can be a lot easier to manage that supply chain from that end. But at the same time, like if you're saving that much of your margin by going directly to a factory, it's probably going to be worth it, you know, going direct to a factory. Um, and so last but not least, factories, you know, at Sourceify, we pre-vet all the factories we work with. Um, we've got our own team in Guangzhou and across Asia and in Mexico. And, you know, with factories, what's really amazing about that experience is that, you know, you're actually working with the, the company that's producing your product. So um, one trick that, uh, you know, we suggest a lot of people to do if they don't, you know, work through Sourceify or, or using their own source is it's like a photo paper trick where you basically ask your sales rep, hey, you know, write my name on a piece of paper, write the date and take a photo of this piece of paper around the facility with, you know, you in the photo. And so you have that validation right there being like, OK, I at least know that this person has access to this facility on this date. And, you know, the, the piece of paper has my name on it as well. So I can see like this is where my products are actually being produced. Because a lot of times, like, you know, anyone could go grab photos online and be like, oh, yeah, like this is our facility. This is our factory. But if you're just grabbing photos, like you don't know if those are actually the uh if, if that's actually the facility that your products are being produced in so i would say you know unless you're using a, a, a sourcing agent or a platform like sourceify that's one trick that we often recommend um and then at the end of the day you can actually ask for their business license and if you can read or speak mandarin you can see their business license and there's what's called a business scope label and that will be able to tell you if they're registered as a factory or trading company and it's not uh, a great it's not it's not the smoothest process but you know you can ask for it and just see and it's always good to actually see that a company is legally registered in china um but besides that like that's really the kind of three main separations behind these uh factories that's fine i've asked so many people about this manufacturing process and this is the first time i've i've heard this story um or heard these these different versions uh of the people you end up dealing with when sourcing and it's suddenly like the horror stories I've heard suddenly make sense where it's like, oh, they were dealing with these middlemen who, you know, once things they tried to deliver, they didn't do a great job. Once things went sour, they disappeared. And then now you're, you're out the money, you've got useless inventory. And that, that, that's probably, you know, what happens to a lot of these, um, uh, these unsuccessful Kickstarters, right? Um, assuming they got past like, you know, being able to actually develop the product mm -hmm, early on. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, right off the, the bat, that's kind of the dynamic behind these different marketplaces or trade shows. And like, to be honest, like people hype up the Canton Fair or, you know, the AFD, uh, sourcing section or magic sourcing section. And like at the end of the day, all of those are pay to play. Like for us at Sourceify, we don't charge the factory side of the table because we go out and make sure these factories are pre-vetted and make sure that we can walk them through, a, a, you know, make sure that they take care of our customers and users. And so, you know, even for these, these uh, trade shows, they're selling booths. Like you go to these trade shows and I would honestly say probably about like 75%, maybe even 80% of those companies aren't factories that we'd work with. Like it's crazy because you walk this floor and you see so many products and you'll go to the Canton Fair and be like, everyone looks like they're producing the same thing. Where at the end of the day, you know, there's only a few factories in there and a lot of those companies aren't the actual factories. And like sometimes they'll even put like branded products be like, oh, like this is, you know, rainbow flip flops that we produce or like billabong board shorts. And it's not even them that's produced it. They just want to show like, oh, we can do this if you want, basically. 
Okay, so I mean, a lot of it is uh, it's smoke and mirrors. It's it, some of it is uh, straight up a scam. So you have to be really careful um, and using a, a sourcing agent, or which I wouldn't even know where to begin to find, or a service like Sourceify, which essentially acts as a sourcing agent. What's that going to cost me? Yeah, so you know, right now Sourceify, we just charge four ninety nine right up front, right off the bat, and that basically gets you from an idea to a finished production run uh, and walks you through a whole process. Uh, it seems reasonable for the amount of risk it is uh, it is mitigating. I like it. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're basically taking you through a whole production run, bringing your idea to life. And we work with companies that are just starting out and as big as companies that are doing, you know, eight going on nine figures, like big marketplaces like Wish.com, Top Hatter. I mean, they're starting to do their private label programs through us. So that's kind of that whole dynamic that we bring to the table in terms of, look, if you want to scale up, we have your back. We're always here for you. Um, and, you know, for us, and even for me uh, personally, like I've faced this problem myself. Like I've gone through the struggles of trying to bring a product to life and scale out my supply chain and understand how hard that can be. So, I mean, we're always going to be here for you. You know, it's not like we're a, a foreign company abroad that's going to try to, you know, rip you off or whatnot. And you're dealing directly with the factory. Like there is no middleman. I, I, you know, our platform connects you directly to these factories and gives you price visibility into what you're actually producing because you get quotes from usually like three to five plus factories. Hmm. So how do you, hmm. even if I use, um, like what's a, I have vetted it and found a good uh, factory through any number of means. What do you think, what are the, like the key steps here to building and maintaining a good relationship with them? I mean, we, we stay out, you got to be prepared, you know, you have to, and you need to, you need to be prepared with your product, um, have done your homework, done your due diligence and be able to show that like, yeah, we're, we're the real deal and this is going to be a, a larger production run, which they would prefer. What, uh, what else can I do? I would say, you know, number one, be very clear and concise about your communication. Like for, you know, you're, you're most likely going to be dealing with the sales reps at these factories. And for them, like, you know, let's say a factory gets like a hundred leads through Alibaba. They know that only two to 3% of those you know, leads are actually going to go into production with them. So those sales reps, I mean, a lot of times, like, to be honest, they don't have the, the most enjoyable job because they're having to qualify you as a buyer. And so for them, make their lives as easy as possible. Like literally be clear and concise about communication. You know, I would say don't just use email, email, like no one likes email, use like WeChat or Skype or like use some form of communication that you can message faster back and forth. And then if you're actually going into a production run, with, I ho- which I hope you are, verify the information and don't just don't just rely on one sales rep like ask for you know hey who's another sales rep at your factory just in case you know this sales rep leaves or it's always good to have at least two point of two points of contact at each factory you work with and then when you go to pay pay the money like send the wire transfer however you're paying you know always make sure you verify their bank information twice and that by that i mean through at least two different uh, modes of communication so if they email you the bank information also verify it through WeChat or Skype or WhatsApp. Use at least two forms of verification whenever dealing with payments because there is like one of the scariest and just like craziest hacks and frauds out there is where you have these Chinese hackers that will hack into these factory email accounts. And literally when they go to send like their bank information, they'll just change the numbers and account information. And you'll send it to the wrong oh, bank account. Geez. And, you know, wire transfer is pretty hard and reverse. And you're like, you're like literally like, like, you just don't even know what happened. I mean, it honestly, like when I was first starting uh, in in manufacturing, like this was in 2011, like I, I slipped up 
And that hack happened, happened to me personally. And I like did all this research on it. I spoke to the police in China and in Hong Kong. I was like, what the heck happened? And at first I was just thinking the sales rep like stole, stole all this money. And what it what I realized was like, this hack is actually pretty common where these Chinese hackers get into a factory's email account that you know probably isn't that secure. And they'll just change, change the bank account information. And you're literally like, left dumbfounded like you have no clue what happened and so um i mean that's one of the i'd say one of the biggest frauds to watch out for that people don't even think about so right off the bat that's a huge heads up um but really at the end of the day you know your goal is to make the factory's life easy and to do that communicate in a very clear concise and, and smooth way it is solid advice um all right final question we're coming to the end of our time together one thing I'm curious about is, is a trend I've been seeing, um, especially uh, last year. This really became very clear and obvious. Factories are starting to go, they are themselves skipping the middleman and going direct to consumer. So they've got, should we be, should we be excited? As consumers, I think we should be excited. Should we be fearful um, you know, that it, uh, factories are going to you know, make knockoffs of the products they're manufacturing for us and sell it direct to consumer? What are, yeah. What's going I on? Mean, I've got to laugh at the question a bit because like I see it every single time I'm in China and like literally our team in China in Guangzhou and, and always asking this question is like, yo, Nathan, like these factories want to start selling directly. Should we help them selling on Amazon or Shopify or whatnot? And I'm like, so look, that's a great opportunity to tap into. But at the end of the day, you know, the biggest flaw that these factories have is their branding sucks. And like literally, like you look at some of these brands, like I've been in meetings now, I was in China for like a week and a half just earlier this month at our, at our office there and meeting with like about two to three factories a day. And like literally you go to these meetings and these factories, like they see the margin that these e-commerce entrepreneurs are making. And they're like, they're like, literally like, dang, like I want to make that much margin. You know, for a factory, they're making maybe like 10, 15% on average. E-commerce entrepreneurs making, you know, at least five times that usually or so. And so they're like, oh, I want to go direct to consumer. You know, how can I sell my products directly to uh, customers in America or Europe or Australia or wherever it may be. And, you know, they present these brands, like these brand names to you. And like, literally you're trying to hold back laughter because it just doesn't make sense in English. And so the biggest, you know, upper hand that an e-commerce entrepreneur has on that whole dynamic of factories going direct is that branding and marketing ability that these factories just don't have. I would say as soon as those factories crack that code in terms of, in terms of understanding how to market their products well, in terms of how to develop a brand, then, you know, e-commerce entrepreneurs should really become scared. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's really why I think in e-commerce, you have to build that brand equity, because if you're just selling a product, a factory comes onto, you know, a marketplace like Amazon and starts selling the same product, there's no way you can compete in pricing with them because they're the ones that are actually producing the product. And so I would say that's one of the biggest dynamics that's, uh, you know, where we're going to see a shift in e-commerce is these factories going direct. It's something to watch out for. But I think at the end of the day, if you want to protect yourself, invest in your brand and build that brand equity. Excellent. Excellent advice. Thank you, Nathan. I really I learned more about manufacturing in this episode than, than any other. So I, I appreciate it. It's been enlightening. Um, last question, where could people go to learn more about you? Totally. They can just go to, you know, trysourceify.com. Um, I'm usually pretty active on LinkedIn as well or Twitter. I'm just Nathan Resnick. Um, and feel free to hit me up. You know, always happy to help with manufacturing or answer any questions you have. Nathan, thank you. Thank you. Before we go, I wanted to tell you about our friends at Zapiet who helped make this episode possible. 
Have you ever wanted to offer local pickup in your store? Or how about scheduled local deliveries? Zapiet's easy-to-use app helps thousands of merchants do just that, offer store pickup and delivery to their Shopify customers right in their store. They've just launched a massive update that adds a ton of new features. To learn more about it and start your 14-day free trial and get 10% off if you stick with it, head to zapiet.com slash podcast. That's Z-A-P-I-E-T dot com slash podcast. Our program was produced today by Paul Rita. The unofficial Shopify podcast is distributed by EtherCycle LLC. We'll be back next week with more value bombs for Shopify store owners. If you're looking for more high-quality and actionable advice on learning the business of e-commerce, join thousands of other Shopify store owners on our totally free newsletter at eCommerce Bootcamp. That's eCommerce-Bootcamp.com.